0: Coming up this week, we have a perler of a chat with Mr. Pankaj Kimji of the Oman Cricket Board and the Asian Cricket Council, but it's even bigger if you're an Emerging Cricket patron where we've released an extended version of this week's show. You can become a patron of Emerging Cricket from as little as $2 US a month to sign up log on to patreon.com slash Emerging Cricket. Sit back and enjoy this one wherever you are, and we hope you enjoy our chat as much as we did putting it all together. When discussing some of the meteoric rises of associate cricket, Oman has emerged as a power in the game. And who better to discuss this with a giant in Oman, new cricket board chairman and future vice president of the Asian Cricket Council, Mr. Pankaj Kimji. Welcome to the Emerging Cricket
1: Podcast. Hi, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. Looking forward to discussing whatever you think is associated with meteoric rises of cricket and the cricketing world. <laughs>
0: Yes. Well, Oman's story is fascinating. It's very much a family affair between you and your father. And first of all, we send our condolences uh, with all of that as well. A a monumental achievement your father Kanaxi had in the area and you starting up now, uh, 1979 to now, there's been such a huge move of of cricket in the country. Looking at at you now, you're taking the the chairman role and the vice presidency of the Asian Cricket Council. What's it going to be like for you juggling the two roles and how have you prepared for all of that uh, in the the coming months when that all comes to fruition?
1: Well, first of all, I need to get my head down into the Oman cricketing, but thank God we've got a fantastic apparatus. We've got a a superb management and a a cricketing team. My board at Oman Cricket has been rock solid and we have a very clear dividing line between cricket and, and, and governance. And we do not, as board, interfere with cricket. We govern, we guide, we make policies, we uh, handhold, we put your hand on the shoulder of the guys who are operating. And we do not discuss, you know, hardcore cricket issues. Those are left to the the delete and the coaches and the trainers and the media. So we're very clear about that. One. Number two, um, we've got a superb mix of very capable, uh, very dedicated, very passionate board members and makes life so much easier. There are no, uh, you know, we're not carrying any baggage or or dead wood. Let's put it this way. Every one of our board members has been associated with cricket in some way or the other. And only then have we really supported each other. And, And this makes a big difference. And and the biggest asset or the biggest so-called acquisition, the, the mindset that you require is basically the passion for the game. Because we reward our board members with nothing. We do not pay them sitting fees. We do not kind of thing. We said, listen, you have a passion for cricket. You think that you want to add or give something back to cricket. Let's do it. So we've got chartered accountants. We've got lawyers. We've got business uh, kind of tycoons in the business we've got industrialists so we've got a very fair mix of people and all we focus on is cricket and we've also got the previous so-called municipal chief of the of the of the region of 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 this thing who's just retired from government we said right come on in because we need to take care of somebody needs to care of all the red tape and government as well so he's come on board and we've just added three more board members and it's really superb it's really excellent and it's got a very nice mix of nationalities cultures people I think that helps. Number two, we made sure that we had a very strong um, operations team. And Duleep uh, Mendes, a legend of the game, you know, has been CEO of Sri Lanka Cricket, uh, has been manager of the Sri Lankan Cricket team, which won the World Cup um, uh, in Pakistan. Um, he's been a captain of, of Sri Lanka, superb human being, so down to earth, so human, humane. Uh, the team loves him. We love him as as the board, and he's very happy living in Oman. And Oman is probably a great country to live in and, and things. So I think this whole atmosphere, creating a, a, a harmonious atmosphere and a very good working relationship with your uh, with your teams is is the most important thing. So I think, that one, I want to maintain that. Uh, one, give each one their space to demonstrate, to basically come out and speak or, or act. And that is very important. Number two, let's not rush into anything, uh, you know, If you look at the last seven years of how cricket has developed in Oman or how Oman has developed its national team and its rankings from the 38th associate country to being now ranked number 13, number 14 in the world in ODI status, getting an ODI international status, getting a T20 international status, getting approvals for the grounds to be ODI and T20 international status, and now getting even a test status on our ground where we were about to host Zimbabwe against uh, afghanistan and sadly that could not be materialized but salawi they say you know there will be a day we will host again so i think that will be the the capping point so yeah lots lots to do but no concerns on how things will progress because business as usual
2: yeah so Pankaj, you obviously you, you you've got the plans going with the board. Um, I'm just thinking, looking a bit sort of um, backwards in in your story. You know, the Kimji family has been heavily involved in Omani cricket for a number of years now. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and so, just tell us a bit about your family story and and where you fit into the picture.
1: So you know, in, if you go back many many years, cricket in in, in Oman used to be played in the late 50s and 60s when visiting naval ships or merchant Navy ships came and anchored in our in our waters and they would come in and say can we do something so um, I remember there was a royal family member late Abbas, who was our first patron chief and he said right let's muster up some guys who are working in the in the armed forces the guys in the from the community and let's see who can play cricket so well there was a very decent Indian community a trading community over here so there were some there were five or six boys from there. Some of them were seconded officers in the army and over here. So they came together and they started playing games. So they were playing, they first played on a, on a coir mat and then they had no outfield at all. I mean, it was like a gravel plane and they started playing. And I think that gave the impetus that, yes, there is some amount of cricket that can be played. And then in the 70s, my father was, who'd gone to school, he was born in Muscat, but he'd went to school in Mumbai. And when you play in the maidans and the grounds of Mumbai and the streets of Mumbai and the the alleyways of Mumbai and the alley, in your corridors at home, cricket kind of gets into you. My father was very, very passionate about cricket in particular, but most field sports, right from table tennis, badminton, uh, cricket. uh, I'm not sure whether he played hockey, but cricket was his first love. And... um, he cut it back, but obviously there were very few opportunities. So when the Renaissance, which is 1970 onwards, came on, they the first thing they did in the early 70s was to set up a little cricket, uh, a group of cricket enthusiasts, which is Heinz and my father. And he was then elected the first uh, so called president of Oman cricket in the mid 70s. And they started organizing corporate cricket amongst the large corporate houses that had come in uh, construction companies to build Oman in the early days. So Taylor Woodrow's and the Gray McKenzie's and uh, Skanska from, from this thing. But most of them were hiring Asian middle management and, and workers. So there was a lot of Asians and they started playing cricket and that's how cricket Started, but he followed cricket. I remember in the late 70s, he actually went and wrote a check of a thousand rupees and five thousand rupees each to some of the big boys who performed well from India, because obviously his favorite team was India. And he sold them a checks. And I think that was cricketers in the old days when they were ranked amateurs in terms of their professional status, were always endowed by the old patriarch families, uh, whether they were the Maharaja families or if you look at the Indian. Uh, cricket scene, you know, 50, 100 100 years ago, most of those teams were kind of patronized and and provided for by the Maharajas, the Barodas, the Indoors, the Holkers, the, the Patialas of the world. And they built the stadiums. So I think every game or everything, any sport, if it needs to be lifted up in, in terms of thing, it needs a passionate family who do not look at uh, what are the returns. It's, it's a lot about giving and about the passion for the game. So if you don't have, it, if you don't have the stomach for it, uh, then you're not. I mean, it's like being a chef. And, you know, you you don't start off being a chef because you want to earn money. You start off being a chef because you're interested. And I think that interest in the game, that sheer passion in the game, uh, which brought in a lot of people. And because of the fact that we had a a patron who was always from the royal family, uh, there weren't any infightings. We were afraid to have any squabbles within the board and within the management, without the operators. And it was always hand-to-mouth. You know, whatever we charged teams to play the league uh, was spent in improvement of the grounds and building the ground. And we were brown grounds till about eight years ago. We didn't have a green field. It's only seven, eight years ago that we started having our first ground. So it's, um, yeah, it's a it's a big um, journey. It's been a, a great achievement in terms of the infrastructure development that has happened. But from a family perspective, so he, I went also to Mumbai because there were no schools, no proper schools in, in Muscat. So I went to Mumbai and I learned my cricket the same way that he did. But I played a little bit of inter-school cricket and I My contemporaries were Ravi Shasti. So I've actually played a game against Ravi Shastri in the school game. So we then knew of each other. We became friends. By then, my father had, we started then going and following cricket and charter, which is a four and a half hour drive. And I remember we used to get up at four o'clock in the morning, get in the car at five, and my father would insist that he would also get into the Sharda Stadium at 8.30 because or 8.15, to be precise, because he wanted to see the toss <laughs> and see the team composition. And those days, he was such a figure. He was so friendly with the Gavaskas of the world and the Jimmy of the world that he would actually walk into the dressing room and, and go and pat them on the back and say, guys, what would you like for lunch? I will guys get somebody from the house to get We had a house in Dubai. My mother would sometimes cook. Sometimes we'd have staff. And we would come and give them little bagfuls of you know, chapatis and puris and, and and potato sabji. And this is how it worked. And there was nobody stopping you. There were no guards. There was no protocol of saying that you can't walk into a player's dressing room. No, no. We walked into the dressing room. And that's how I got into the in, into knowing the players. And basically, I would say Father was more the patron and a patriarch to the game in general, at least in this part of the world, and became very well known. i, I You know, the great thing was when he passed away, within 72 hours, the famous 1983 Indian cricket team that won the World Cup in England, nine out of the 11 players in the team actually had sent me a message. Wow. Wow. Amazing. I mean, so he, you know, it's it's, it's amazing. So that's the kind of regard. And then I think it was also in Sydney or Melbourne that with an MCG. That he was awarded the lifetime achievement award for his services to to cricket by the ICC. So he he got that about eight years ago, the same year that we got the 38th associate nation status in the in, in the ICC. So it you know it's I think it's passionate to answer that question and then summarising an answer. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I think that's quite obvious in what you guys have have tried to achieve. And I compare that to a few places where I see that there isn't really passion. And I look at franchise T20 leagues that try to get it off the ground and never do because a lot of them are more interested in about how they make money rather than the passion for the game. But on, on the flip side of that, there are a lot of associate members that fall into the same category that cricket is actually booming per capita by how many people are potentially in a country, how many people play in the country, because the passion is is so rife and I look at that national team on the field, the Omani national team, and when they achieved one day international status in, in Namibia at World Cricket League 2, we were lucky enough to be there. We'd heard about these much these much fabled uh, Omani lunches that were put on. No,
2: I, I can endorse the Omani lunches. Oh, did did you get one? Yeah, then? yeah, yeah. I, oh, oh,
0: unbelievable.
2: Bro. Yeah, I, I did not take the, uh, the I seafood. I, I, I knew where the good food was.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: I unfortunately didn't manage to get my hands on that.
1: So, you know, we, we as a family, we traveled, we followed the Omani team. I mean, father and mother both were in Scotland Ireland when we first qualified for the first T20 World Cup in India in 2015. And then out of the teams that qualified to play, I think there were about, what, eight teams, nine teams, and only three or four would have gone in to the World Cup. And we were ranked number eight or nine. And there was, you know, we just about made it into that qualification stage in Ireland Scotland. So when we went there, you know, we were saying, OK, OK, so even if we come in the top five, you're fine. But we Came number four and we made it to the world cup final so at that time we were about 10 of us or nine of us who were there in scotland and ireland and i remember my father stayed from scotland which was where the first half was played and then in dublin where the second half was played of that tournament and i attended the first game or the first two games and then when i can i had work to do in india my father within a week when we started playing we started winning games he said you're coming back now well so i actually flew back i was in india and i flew back with india from india back again to Dublin to see the semi-final and the final. Uh, you know, the games against uh, Namibia and the game thereafter against Afghanistan, which decided who was number three and four. But that was him. He stayed the full 21 days. We then followed up the game. We went to India. We were in Dharamshala in, in We played superb out there as well. Uh, beat Ireland, uh, our first real win at the World Cup. Um, we then went back and did various tours of Uganda, Namibia together on, on various safaris together <laughs> so it, you know the travel and the camaraderie and the so-called gamemanship which was coming in and we enjoyed that following the game and I think that the team likes the idea of having you know you around because they feel that okay there's somebody there to look after and he said you win we go out for dinner at night you know I pay <laughs> that's it Simple. It was a simple rule. You don't win, you go back to your rooms, you eat your hotel food, and you sulk, you know, or you recover from whatever you have to do. Simple as that. And we'll get you little snacks and food during the game. Yeah, fine. You know, mommy would bring them and I'd, we'd bring them. And, yeah.
0: That, And again, to, to look at how the, the team is comprised, it is a very diverse team, just like you were talking about with with the board and, and everything that runs through Omani Cricket, which to me again suggests that cricket kind of transcends everything in all of this and it's it's Absolutely. a very passionate group of players and, and a passionate group of officials and, and board and everyone who works for the Omani Cricket Board. Take it back a little bit further to maybe the domestic cricket scene in Oman. Yeah. Uh, what's club and recreational cricket like? Does it embody the same sort of spirit as, as the national team? How does does it manifest itself in that in that in that
1: part? So we have, unlike cricketing countries which have, especially let's say countries which have been under the the colonial past where cricket has been a way of life, uh, especially in the summer months or in the cricketing season, we did not really have that. So we didn't have clubs who played cricket because the, the national passion was either football or field hockey, and we were catering purely to the expatriate population. So we had to kind of get corporates to field teams. So we have 80 plus teams that play in our league from A to something like G division. So eight, nine, 10 uh, divisions and about five to seven teams participating in each one of them. And then we have the, the premier division, which has five teams. Now, these teams are all sponsored by corporates. There's no clubs that come and play the game. The only clubs that come and play the game are the eight teams. They're sponsored by clubs. They're not sponsored by any individual. But otherwise, it's all a corporate sport. Um, Once they reach a particular level, it becomes very passionate. And and, and 100% of our team, even the national team, would you imagine that they're all extremely amateur cricketers? They're not on any professional contract. We give them a stipend, pretty much like a bonus, and it's marginal. It really is. Literally, they can just about get two square meals a day if they were to go by that. They can't live on it. They have to have a side profession. So most of them work nine to five and then they come in. We now have a few players who stayed back and the sponsors have relieved them from their work requirements and they can hang around the cricket ground. They can practice They've reduced their salaries, and we've increased the stipend. So it, it compensated them, and now they're working. But they're not on contract. They don't work for Oman Cricket, none of them. So we don't have any national players who are either employed by us or sponsored by us on our work visa. So we still very much pride ourselves on the fact that we are still a very professionally amateur cricketing nation, where the commercial lure of being a national cricketer hasn't quite Bitten. So, so long as I think we stay amateur, so long as the board and the management also offer the money requirements, I think we'll stay we'll the stay same. So that's the cricket scene. So the domestic scene is very tight, very competitive. We start in the month of September-ish, and we end by the end of April. And um, we've got a 50-hour game uh, tournament. Uh, the junior team, so the top A, B, C, is 50 hours. The rest of them play a 25-hour league. or We used to play 25. Now we, we follow the T20 format. So we have the two green grounds, and the rest of them play on brown outfields at the seven pitch with an AstroTurf wicket.
2: So you, you just talked about how... Um... The Omani team is is largely amateur even today, and yeah. uh, I guess that raises an interesting question in terms of you know Oman's position within the international rankings, and you know how competitive do you see Oman getting with amateur players, and and is there any sort of plans in the future to move towards a professional structure?
1: Listen, it's we have debated this all the time. Do we want to go professional? Do we not want to go professional? How high do you want to go up the ladder in in order? I mean. A month ago, we were ranked 13th country in the ODI circuit. So last week, it became 14. We haven't played cricket, so I don't know how that worked. But somebody must have played a couple (laughs) of games and have have gone up the the ranking. That's fine. Uh, It it doesn't really bother us. Um, I don't see myself growing beyond 13, 14, going any higher. I think we've reached that epitome of where we expect to be. My responsibility, and I think our main mandate would be now in the next three to five years, is to maintain this level, that we stay within the top three, four, five nations, which are not fully test class. So if we can stay within 20 to 15, or I would say 17 to 13 in our rankings at ODI level, and similarly amongst the top 20 in the T20 status, I think we, we would have achieved some consistency. And then we'll know exactly where we're going and what is it that is lacking. in. Because I see a very strong America coming out. I see a very strong Nepal uh, being built. I think there might be one or two surprises coming out of Africa. And will we be able to withstand the onslaught and the professionalism that might come in? So I think America in the last three years were completely out of sorts because the combination of reasons of, you know, one fragmented approach. Now that they've got a good apparatus in place, who are putting it together. You know, I think they're going to come very strong. So will we be able to maintain that level? The LEAP? Uh, s- certainly believe so how good is my bench strength will i still keep getting a fresh talent now another good thing that happens is that we've got a very strong schools into schools game there are about 35 school teams playing uh, Thursday evening cricket under lights. And we really make it very competitive. And the good thing is that, that my top two players in rankings, ICC rankings and Oman rankings, are both nurtured from the schools cricket. So when, they've been playing Oman schools cricket tournament since they were 13. And they're now number one and number two cricketers for Oman cricket. They're in their 20s. They're young. They're hungry. And it shows. And, you know, they've, they've really performed. So I'm hoping that a two, one or two more might come up from the school's cricket and stay here. My problem is that I get them in to play under 13, under 16, under 19. But as soon as they finish school, they go to university abroad. So I, having groomed them and nurtured them from a cricketing standpoint for the last you know, five, seven years, I lose them when he's at his prime. I need them most. So you know, 80% of them go, go away. 20% of them were in the cricketing thing, might stay. We're now trying to entice them by staying on by offering them a university scholarship in Oman, part scholarship. Right? So I pay a third, the university discounts a third, and the parents will sponsor the other third. So instead of paying, let's say, $10,000 per year on a scholarship, now the father has to pay only 3000 if he leaves his son here and is there for the next three to five, four years. So you know that really helps. So that, those are the kind of things, incentives that we're trying to provide to the youth team and see whether we can entice them to stay here rather than go back to India or Pakistan or, or, or Sri Lanka or whatever.
0: I think this is just fascinating because when we discuss a lot of associate countries' issues, a lot of them have the same issues, but I think what gets forgotten in a lot of it is that in different parts of the world, people and and associate members have very different issues. I can't see many having that problem of going overseas to to study in in their university studies and and losing your talent that way. There's so many other issues that happen in the associate world. That's just another one that that adds to a, a very long list, but... Looking at the at the national team that you do have now, tell us a bit about some of the, the individuals there. We, we know a lot about their performances on the field. Bilal Khan bowls as at will. He's one of the brightest lights in the associate game, at least with the ball. Zishan Maksud seems like a very inspired leader when he when he runs the team. Talk us about some of the, the personalities of, of the national team because I think they collectively show a lot of spirit when, when they play. But from an Omani point of view, I don't think we hear a lot of them individually. So tell, tell us about some of the, the personalities in that team.
1: So we've we've got a fantastic mix. First of all, I think we've got, what, two or three different nationalities playing in this one team, and then coached by a fourth nationality, and then trained by another fifth nationality, and then probably analyzed by a sixth nationality. So, you know, there's a huge, and it's a hot pot. And the one thing we do not tolerate, zero tolerance for, one discipline. You know, it's cricketing rules. You bat both on and off the field with a straight bat. We do not accept any indiscipline. One, no racial connotations, direct and indirect, of any sort within the team. Zero. Number three, we do not discriminate between class of people in the team, captain. No, everybody has a voice and everybody dictates a voice. And we leave it to Dulip and his people to manage the team. We, the board, do not interfere with team management. And it's a very clear uh, demarcation. Do not question the manager on what's happening in the team. You expect the manager to upgrade you. That's fine. But do not tell him, why didn't you do that? No. That's not your business. You're not qualified enough to do that. And simple as that. So I think once you lay down the ground rules, then it just, the team players suddenly realize that there's no politics out here. I don't need to go and, and whether you like it or not, it happens in any sport, that you are so desperate to get into the second 11 or the or the first 11 that at some point in time, you lose consciousness of what is right and what is wrong. And you will go that one step beyond to make your lifelong dream happen. And players realize that it won't happen over here. It doesn't matter whether you know Mr. Kimji or whether you know Mr. Dilip Mendes that much better or you've gone to his home. No, 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 we don't. We don't have that. Uh, we, we leave cricket to cricket and governance to govern. So I think we've laid those ground rules and we've made sure that there is no uh, thing. And, and even within the board, we do not have any issues in terms of things. So a lot of the times squabbles happen between teams, team management, team management, boards, fees, money, you know, Has unions etc etc as long as you keep that out of your equation um, you'll be running a straight mathematical sum you know you bring in 20 players you play 15 players you make sure that five players in the bench strength out of 20 get rotated all the time the best performers come in and people who haven't performed so we have a performance evaluation system that works on a six monthly basis grade one grade two grade three players in the top 20 and they keep changing all the time and this is done on a very uh, democratic way by the team management so we keep on doing that and I think it's been very fair, and the leap has been absolutely non-political in that in that front, and I think it then percolates down. So when you have a board, and then you have a top management. And then you have a team captain and his thing. And as long as they stay a political, things work out. And I think more often than not, it's it's favoritism or a camaraderie ship that sometimes leads ways to kind of saying, Oh, he's done so well. Why don't you give him another chance? No, we don't we don't do that. Um again, going back to who are my key players. Uh, you know, I love our young boys, AQ, which is Ake Elias, Akim Akeb, and, and
2: Jati. That's Jatinda Singh, yeah.
1: Yes. So Akib and Jati are my two favorite batsmen, no questions about it. And both schoolboy cricketers, in Oman, man. Both have grown up the ranks and probably that's half the reason why I like them more than I like the other half. But that's that shouldn't be the case. As Now as chairman of Oman Board, I love every one of my 35 top identified players.
2: <laughs> no favourite children.
1: <laughs> but I have a special emotional connect with these two because I've seen them grow and play the thing and really grow into being international cricketers. I'm very proud of them. One, number two, the way Zishan uh, Maksud has led the team before him, Sultan led the team. Sultan was an extremely astute captain and a superb wicket keeper. And Maksud came on and you know did a phenomenal job and has done a phenomenal job. And then we brought in some young rookies who came on and, and did a fantastic job. But if you go back to 2015, we had this bowler who bowled a very malinga Slinger, kind of sidearm action and lethal Yorkers. He's now in his late 30s of age. And sorry, yeah? Yeah, Muniz. You remember him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how could we forget? <laughs> yeah, what a player. I mean, so <laughs> Muniz was the real fast bowling thing that we, we brought on and fantastic. And Bilal, uh, I think, you know, when I talk to my two South African trainers and physios, they underline saying the most hardworking cricketer in the team is Bilal Khan. And it shows, right? When he's performing on the ground, if he hasn't picked up wickets in the first three hours, he's going to do it in the next four, if not in the last three. So, you know, he's, he's the kind of bowler that, you know, you want to look up. He's probably the boomer of Oman's team or he's the cummins of, of the Oman team, you know, that you look up to. The captain will go up to and say, you know, give me that one, you know, put him right or slow it down or whatever it happens. So he's been just fantastic. And that game against Hong Kong, when we qualified for the World Cup in the ODI status again in UAE, the guy bowled with, I mean, he was a man-possessed. So I think I like Bilal very much. I mean, great, great cricketer. What an athlete. We then have a, uh, Khawar. Khawar Ali, yeah. Khawar is now, uh, what, in his mid to late 30s? An amazing leg spinner, superb googly, but an opening back. Now, when we went into um, Uganda... The guy got out six games, and he got out four times in the single figures. But he went on to take the maximum number of wickets in the tournament and came out to be the best bowler of the tournament. Amazing. The guy got us wickets at all times. So I think there's been a great evolution in the way they played. A leg spinner was no way could he a leg spinner play in a limited-over game. They were virtually going to be a, a slow death. And now look at it. Every other good bowler is a leggy, right? But he doesn't bowl just the leg spin. Earlier, you would have a leg spin and a googly. There was no other ball. But now he's bowling all sorts of things. Top spin, wins, you know, the, uh, six balls will be six different balls. I mean, look at Rashid Khan. Probably the best exponent of, of spin bowling in today's, today's cricket, I think. And, you know, the boys, the last two years and a half, three years, since we started playing the WCL2, they've just gained so much experience. They've just gained so much confidence or so much international experience in playing. I mean... Going to Nepal, beating Nepal in their own backyard. Going to the USA, beating USA in their own backyard. Uh, going to Namibia, beating Namibia in their own backyard. It takes a lot of courage. It make, it, it's not a fluke. It's not just a one-off kind of thing. So I believe that you know these boys, under Dulip's guidance and under a certain amount of mindset, they've just got the right mind in their heads. Uh, they've got the right head on their shoulders, and they've got a physical attribute now, thanks to Evet and uh, Sean they've just become that much more endurance wise that much better you know we getting less niggles and injuries at the end of the tournament that's how i gauge the fitness thing i don't look at what is available to me at the start of the tournament it's more important that at the end of six games in eight days will i have eleven that can play in two more games if i had to or you know will we be going back with four you know handicaps so i think one is the fact that we spend a lot of money on a lot of time and energy on on the fitness and the regime try telling a patan that you can't have your pasmatri and, and, and naan bread and you can't have your butter chicken. <laughs> I tried telling an Indian sadhar from Punjab saying that, you know, sorry, I won't let you have your lassi and your and your mutton rogan josh. <laughs> uh, but Everton and, and Sean were able to convince them to do that. But they, you know, it's not only about the training, it's also about what you put in. What you put in stays in more often than not. I mean, and especially the ones that you really like to eat, uh, that stays in longer. <laughs> so, so I think that they, they've now realized what is good and what is not good for them. And in, when we come into the season, they started eating better. They're more alert. They're more fitness-wise. So yeah, great individuals in the team, but more importantly, a very well-knit team
0: on top of the nutrition and the, the training regime a key component of all of that is also the facilities and, and looking at Al Amarat now and we've only seen photos, we've heard from Peter Della how great the, the facilities are there. There was a lot of organisation in, in regards to all of that. Talk us through how that came into being and now it's recognised by the ICC as, as a, a test venue. Unfortunately it didn't get that test match uh, and we all know why of course but I'm sure, I'm sure there will be one in, in the near future. Tell us about the Amarat facility?
1: So, about 15 years ago, when we got the land allocation from the Ministry of Sport, saying, okay, this is the land we're allocating for cricket, it was about 70 odd thousand square meters. So, we could build two nice, proper grounds, but we needed money. Now, uh, let me tell you from a commercial point of view, what we earn from cricket teams, a membership to the Oman Cricket Association on an annual basis where they get to play the leagues and, and, and knockout tournaments, what we earn we spend in the same year. So we at the end of the year, we're broke, but we cover all our costs. We have no debts and we don't have any subsidies coming in from the government. So we are a self-financed organization. The question was, do we grow our international recognition or do we grow grassroots Now, to grow grassroots, you need money with less money coming in. If I grow internationally, I get funding from ICC and I get recognition. Uh, Recognition will mean more people will participate in sports. Once they participate in sports, they get into training. Then I can charge them to train. So I think we followed the second thing, which is let's go international first. Let's get recognized. Let's spend money on that. So we wrote a very passionate letter to his majesty, our late majesty. And we told him that, listen, the cricket is the last sport where the rules of the game dictate everything else. It's a very disciplined sport where the two teams do not even touch each other, where you do not even raise an eyebrow to the umpire or the on-field referee where people still play whites, though there are some colored pajama crickets that are also being introduced, which are getting more popular, unfortunately.
2: Unfortunately, (laughs) exactly.
1: And so we wrote this kind of letter to His Majesty. And His Majesty is a Sanders graduate, is a stick disciplinarian, has raised Oman from the dark days to its glorious 50 years and renaissance as one of the leading uh, global countries uh, today. So we wrote to him in that form, and he said, "If we can have an X amount, then we'll be able to develop an infrastructure, and we'll be able to develop both grassroots and the international status together, and it'll give Oman a recognition." You in fifteen days we got an answer to go ahead, and that made us build the infrastructure that we have today, which I think. Amongst the developing nations in cricket terms, amongst the associate nations, I haven't seen an associate nation that has the kind of infrastructure. So I'm very proud of what we've achieved. And I think the board is very proud and the country is very proud. So we gave it, we actually signed up with the MCC and told them, tell us how you built your indoor facility. Tell us what we need to do in terms. And we didn't want to build a stadium. Because it's not about 5,000 people. It's about the 20 people on the ground. So we said that first, let's cater to the cricketers. The audience will build benches, and then we'll build a little shade, and then we'll build a little stand, and we'll we'll go and build a ground with audience facilities. So everything we put in was with the cricketer in mind and nothing else. It's not about building a you know grand thing. So I think that really helped us, one. Number two, we also used part of the money to bring in full-time coaches. And we also made sure that these coaches in part of the grassroots development program as well. Unfortunately, we were about to launch it in January last year. COVID schools weren't allowed to go and participate in group sports, etc. So we're waiting to roll out. We've got all the coaches on standby. Uh, We've got a huge indoor facility, which is absolutely excellent. We had Lancashire who came and trained with us pre-season. We had uh, Middlesex that came and trained a little bit. And Nottinghamshire who came and trained uh, pre-season. We've had various teams that have come and played friendlies over here with us. You know, we are looking at probably some national teams. And everyone who's come and played the WCL too, saying, listen, do we really need to go to certain countries that they're saying no oh, no can we not display it in Oman we don't mind if you have the home at one <laughs> so i think we i said it's not up to us it's up to icc icc loves us i think they've been very fair to us you know they like the fact that we're very clean and even our our programs are very very clear we have a, in, from a financial fiscal discipline point of view we're probably the first people who submit our balance sheets and our PLs and our Cost breakdowns on what funds we receive from them and how we spent them, etc. So I think from that standpoint, we have a great good working relationship. Uh,
2: just connecting some of the dots, just with the the Al Amarat facility. You know, you, you mentioned some of the plans for the usage. Obviously, the indoor facility and and hosting potentially neutral games. So, what's the long term idea for Al Amarat? You know, is the idea that it'll become sort of a regional hub in in a similar way
1: to the UAE? See, Anand, I don't see us building a grandstand. Like I said, I do not see us building public infrastructure. I will build one more ground. If I were given a million dollars, I'd build one more ground or I'd put on lights in the second round. You know, I'm not interested in in making this a, a huge thing. I want this to be the best green fields, the best cricketing infrastructure for amateur cricketers. And anyone who wants to come and play, I'll give them an, as good an international ground as one can have. So I think I'll maintain the status quo that I'm in at the moment. I've got a very good indoor facility. I've got seven beautiful wickets done by Gaba. You know, two spin, two fast, and three normal wickets. Uh, and they are not green in color. like most AstroTurf indoor wickets are, they're actually sand in color, which which is how Wickets are normally in the color in the real life. Yes. It's a superb thing, which has a full 20-yard run-up, by the way. All the seven wickets, unlike most indoor facilities, which have little run-up for a fastballer. You know, they literally have less than 10 yards. So it doesn't really help a fastballer. And we've got rubber mats underneath the main area where the front foot is not coming under a lot of stress and the knees not under thing. Because when you bowl indoors, you have this fear of hurting your, your knees and your joints because you are coming down very heavy on a very hard ground. So we've made sure that we had a very nice little felt and a little sponge, especially in the bowlers run-up coming up to the front foot where it lands.
0: I like all the player consideration in all of this. I think one thing that I harp on about here at times, and I have noticed it from from listening back to a few of the shows, is that player welfare, especially in associate cricket, is is hugely important. You know, without the players, you know, that there's no entertaining cricket for us to watch. There's no team. So looking at ahead to July 1, when you take the, the vice presidency at the ACC. What do you intend to bring in, in in that space under Jay Shah?
1: See, what Asian cricket, let's understand Asian cricket. So it's, it's 20 odd countries from Hong Kong all the way up to the GCC. And we survive because of the Asia Cup. Asia Cup provides a lot of funding, which then trickles down to a lot of the Asian cricket associates which really helps us in our little developments that we want to do and, and think. Unless we don't do Asia Cup and one or two more, and there's an emerging Asia Cup, and then there's another T20 and, and, and so on. So it boils down to the fact that we need to find in our calendar, in the very busy calendar of the big four, big five, now we've got Afghanistan as a full player, full team, to get them to come together to play this Asia Cup. And the more we play within Asia, within the region and getting the associate upcoming associate countries to come and play that, you know, how else are you going to encourage cricket? So my role is going to be, see, can we organize instead of three tournaments across three years, can we do four or five tournaments across four years or five tournaments across three years? So if we do a calendar of three years, can we bring in one more tournament and add one or two more developing countries or associate countries to participate in those tournaments. So it's all about more cricket. Thankfully, because having India on your side and Pakistan and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh, there's no dearth of television coverage once they start playing. But if you consider what's happening next, is that if you look at the emerging tournament, the Asian cricket emerging tournament, the second teams from India and Pakistan today can go and and play any country. If you look at what happened in Australia when the Indian team visited that. Today, now you've got an an Indian team a second 11 is going to play in Sri Lanka between the end of the World Cup test match and the start of the series in, in England because they can't, because of this bio bubble, they have to stay back in England. So the second team looks like eight out of 12, 11 players have played already international cricket. So we're saying that let's have a second 11 playing against four or five associates from the big boys because that itself will attract the television to fund the games and also get some revenue to percolate down into the associates and other developing countries. So, you know, I I believe that the likes of Nepal, the likes of Hong Kong and Malaysia and Singapore, they've got a lot of potential to come out of. You know, I also believe that one other GCC country, UAE is definitely good. I mean, a little bit of honing here and there, and they will be back in their prime. And now they've got Robin Singh as their coach, full-time. They've got players on full-time contract. And Unfortunately, last year and the year before, they had some issues with this disciplining and they lost nearly half the team or not full team, uh, which caused them a lot of hiccups. I hope that is now out of the way and they, they can get on with cricket. But, you know, I think these three, four countries, if they play more cricket within the Asian region, not just against each other, but against the better teams, a second 11 from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, then we'll get We'll be able to kind of match up to those levels. And I think more cricket is all about what I want to kind of canvas for going into the Asian ECC. Look, I, I was a member of the board in any case, but now I'm expected to kind of take on some role in the finance and development committees as well, where I'll be able to kind of express my things. saying development committee would also mean the grants and the finance committee would also mean revenues. So... If we can see all that, and then balance that with the revenues and, and see how we can increase the revenue and, and which we need more handouts for the for the associates.
0: I think I could speak on behalf of, of Nick here and put our hands up and say that we would support an emerging nations Asia Cup. and yeah. with, with a name like Emerging Cricket, I think it's just a, a match made in heaven in, in terms of uh, media partnerships, but that, that's another <laughs> uh- discussion for another day.
2: So, we've talked a bit about the men's team, and we have seen the women's national team in, in Oman play a few games. Uh, they, they played a series against Germany last year, and yeah. um, there were some interesting moves with some social programs and private partnerships in Oman to empower the women. Uh, what are some of the cultural challenges with building the women's team, and, and you know, where do you see that going for Oman?
1: See, the women's cricket is, again, another challenge. We have a lot of girls interested in playing while they're at school and after school. But again, they all, as soon as they finish high school, they want to go to university. Most girls want to go to good universities abroad and they don't stay back. Now, the girls' development, you know, it's not like a 19-year-old boy that he's strong and he's an 18-year-old boy who started developing his physique. The girls getting their strength more when they're in their 20s and, and they're the strongest and fittest. And so I'm losing out on girls strength-wise. So I, get a, I got a girls' team, but I don't have a women's team. Mm. In fact, my girls are stepping into the women's shoes to play women's cricket. So I'm missing out on that. And we do not have women players in cricket. So I'm not sure how I can encourage women to play cricket. And like, I can encourage men to play cricket, but it becomes difficult if a woman hasn't played cricket in her lifetime to get her to come wield a bat. And they won't go on the streets and start playing gully cricket either, unlike men going for obvious reasons. So I think we've got a little issue in terms of getting the right kind of people and getting uh, the thing, but our grassroots program to inculcate cricket at schools level in the government schools and in the local uh, community schools in Oman that had a huge impact because we got nearly 40% women when we launched that program, uh, girls at the age group of eight to ten, that they would local girls would come and play cricket without an issue, wearing the same t-shirt, and the same shorts. So we got that kind of encouraging results, and we were about to roll it up. So I think we're a fair way away from playing competitive women's cricket, but. Girls cricket, yes, we'll play good girls cricket, at least for the time being. You've
2: mentioned, obviously, you, you, you just talked about the government program, the government schools and the relationship with the government. And I remember, you know, last year when the Sultan Qaboos bin Saeed and, and he died and the Cricket World Cup League 2 was, was had to be called off for the national mourning Halfway, yeah. And and it was a big deal. And yep. so, obviously, Oman's cricket, you, you talked about also the uh, relationship with Al-Amarat. So, clearly, there's a relationship with the government there. W- what is the place of cricket within Oman and maybe talk a bit about the the dynamic uh, with the government.
1: Oman has got a very diverse culture you know we've got the influence of Zanzibar and we've got people Omanis who were in Zanzibar when Zanzibar was a part of Oman who've come back and have lived here so they bring in a little bit of the African East African flavor. Uh, some of them have played cricket and have seen cricket in, in, in Tanzania and in, in, in Mombasa and, and these places so they understand that there's a game called cricket. Number one. Number two we've got a huge proximity to India and, and Pakistan. Remember, Oman owned Gwadar, a little port city in Pakistan. So there there was a huge Belushi population that came and migrated and started living in Oman. And with that, they brought in their affinity to, to cricket as well. So the mixture of cultures amongst communities in Oman has really helped adapt cricket much more easier than I would say any other country in the Middle East. And um, we've always had this role of patronage. So Our first patron was Sayyid Abbasman Faisal, who initiated the the act of putting up an Oman cricket club. And then we had Sayyid Shabib, who had studied in Pakistan and understood cricket, and he Kind of became the second patron again, a royal family member. His Majesty's uncle, and then His Majesty himself, who took over from His Majesty Caboose last January. You know, he was our patron since 1992 as our patron chief. And you know what a coincidence that in 2019, the World Cup, July in London at Lords, we both were in the in the royal box <laughs> watching the full final. Then he comes back here, you know, we've, he's been to the MCC twice. He's also, can you imagine, he was witness to that very famous Indian victory over England and that ODI when Ganguly ripped his shirt apart and, yeah. and waved it up from the balcony at think <laughs> where they yeah. chased 315 or 316, where Mahmoud Khaif and uh, Yurad Singh kind of chased an improbable total. So... He was there. He was witness for that as well.
2: That's a hell of a game to be there for. Yeah,
1: exactly. And then every year we would have a game of the patron chief's level against the president's level. And it would be my father against his majesty. And he was then just the minister of culture and heritage at the time, you know, but he was still very much a highness, very much part of the royal family. And he would come out and play. He would don his whites. He would put on the pads. He would bowl. He would then complain the fact that my shoulder aches after bowling this thing. What is his action arm? Can I not bowl any other way? <laughs> Do I have to turn the the thing? But, you know, he also went to boarding school in in England. So he understands that cricket was played in the summer in England. So he understands the game. So he's been extremely supportive. I must say it makes a big difference when you have patronage and support from the highest order and coming down. And now, fortunately, his own son, our heir apparent, has become named the minister of sports and youth. And who I have known as virtually his family. And, you know, he's suddenly... You know, you, you suddenly have a voice, you suddenly have an ear of somebody up there, and it cuts out all the red tape. So, you know, we don't have to battle administration, or we don't have to battle red tape over here. We send a message, and it gets done. Uh, you know, we want 30 visas for the Afghans, even in times when Afghans weren't uh, persona non grata. In 72 hours, we have 30 visas. You know, what about Zimbabweans? Oh, we don't have not issued visas to Zimbabwe for over 10 years now I said but we need to bring the Zimbabwe team down for the test 36 hours 30 visas issued to Zimbabwe you know that's that's how good the government has been and you know I said what do you need is you know don't ask for some money but everything else in kind we'll give you so I said can we borrow some buses because you know uh, you know if I go to hire a bus and a driver uh, to transport teams back and forth if they're going to stay here for a month it's going to be difficult done so I had the D1 buses D1 is the royal protocol so they gave me the buses Said, you know you can have them so you know it's been it's been a superb relationship and I, I you know i can't thank them enough and i i believe that it's working as one understanding the, the trust the belief that we have in each other and they have in us has gone a long way
0: okay so in all of our the podcasts and every time we invite a guest we ask them if there was a law in cricket that they wish to change what would it be and why i know we've put you on the spot here but if there was to be a law do you think the game's perfect as it is
1: I think, I think cricket is a very perfect game. <laughs> you know, it's, it's played with a straight bat, and that's what matters, I mean, in, in the, the sense that I'm talking about. But a couple of laws that I feel are impartial to either the batsman or to the bowler, I, I believe the bowlers are not given their fair share. I think certain things like marketing should be Either it is on or it's not on. You know, clarify. Why do we need, need to have an ambiguity in saying yeah, that's not cricket? But but you're allowing it. Why don't you just put one line saying marketing not done? Or marketing is okay as long as you warn the cricketer. So I think this is the kind of thing that I'd like to see uh, when... And I don't want too many restrictions. I mean, yes, we have two restrictions on two bounces and the limited over. Fine. In test cricket, I wouldn't want to be putting in any more, you know, I don't want to ring fence a bowler from using his arsenal of bowling weapons.
2: Yeah, you, you want fires, Butt to be uh, peppering them in, don't you?
1: Yes, absolutely. I want <laughs> I, I, you know, and, and, and then they're saying, they're talking about this thing that you need to have friendly wickets. What's a friendly wicket? I want to go to West Indies and see green wickets. And I want to go to England and, and see the ball swing by a yard. I want to do that I want the ball in in Pakistan and India to turn a yard and a half and I want to go to Australia to Perth and you know I, I'm really sad that Perth doesn't bounce as way well it used to bounce you know what happened you know you wouldn't have had a Dennis Lilly had Perth been a, a dead wicket that it is today very true you know I, I I want I want wickets to be country friendly and that's what it is you don't go to another country to play in your own backyard
2: yeah it definitely adds to the character of the game it doesn't it
1: mm. you know I, I you know I said I rubbish those kind of things and one thing I was not in favor of was this so-called 10 degree and 9 degree and 15 degree law when you bowl you know that you allowed the elbow to bend you know I don't want to name cricketers but um, <laughs> I believe that if you bat with a straight bat and that is good cricket you bowl with a straight arm and that is good cricket simple no ambiguity in that it doesn't matter whether you're born with any deformity nothing no no, no. you bowl with a straight arm you bowl with a straight arm Colors. that's it there's no such thing as a nine-degree elbow, elbow and a 15-degree elbow go get yourself tested. No. A batsman knows and an empire knows when one chucks and a bowler knows that he's bent his arm. Period. Thank
0: you. I think that's a good way to finish off, Nick. What, what about you? Yeah, I can't argue with that. <laughs> uh, a true cricket man in every sense of the word, Mr. Pankaj Kimji. Thank you so much for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Good luck with everything in Omani cricket over the next Well, lifetime, I hope, because it sounds as if cricket is in very, very good hands there. Hopefully, we see Oman at a T20 World Cup and we see you in the stands fist pumping every wicket and every boundary that Oman score or take. Thanks once again for joining the Emerging Cricket Podcast and good luck uh, not only in Oman, but for the ACC as well under your vice presidency. We look forward to all of that as well.
1: Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you very much. Nick and look forward to seeing you in, in the not too distant future oh
0: we can't wait when we're allowed out of Australia we are the first people there
1: good if not we'll see you at the World Cup hi this is
0: Angie Rath, and you're listening to the Emerging Preview Podcast A huge thank you again to Pankaj for joining us on the show, one of the big personalities in the Emerging Game, and we hope that came across to you wherever you are around the world listening. We look forward to Oman and Asia's progress under his leadership as well. Next week, we'll wrap the Scotland and Netherlands one-day series, as well as everything else in the Emerging Game. But for now, make sure to log on to EmergingCricket.com for all the news in the associate world and follow us on your various social media platforms. On behalf of everyone here at the Emerging Cricket Podcast, we'll see you next week.